I know a lot of folks say, you know, I want to have these conversations, but I'm afraid of doing more harm. And I will tell you that the harm is happening, whether or not you have these conversations. But when it happens without you being part of the conversations, I experience harm and I feel alone. I don't know that anyone else cares, has my back, sees what's happening. It's lonely. I don't like to argue, so I say nothing and fume for days. How do I set boundaries without sounding like a jerk? I hate the idea that I might accidentally offend somebody, so sometimes I'd just rather say nothing at all. Welcome to the Language Alchemy Podcast, and thank you for joining me today. This is your host, Alejandra Siroca, a transformative communication teacher and coach who's devoted to helping multicultural individuals and couples on the path of transformation transform their lives and relationships through conscious communication. I'm very grateful you're here today because today I have a special treat for you. I am going to interview another expert on communication and more specifically on anti-racist communication. Her name is Dr. Roxy Manning. I met Roxy over a decade ago when I did a year-long program with her called NVC Leadership Training. NVC stands for Nonviolent Communication, for those of you who may not know. And Roxy is not only a certified Center for Nonviolent Communication trainer and assessor, she is also a licensed clinical psychologist and an author of a couple of books that we're going to talk about today. One of her books is called How to Have Anti-Racist Conversations, Embracing Our Full Humanity to Challenge White Supremacy. She is also the co-author with Sarah Payton of the companion text, The Anti-Racist Heart, a self-compassion and activism handbook. In addition to her academic training and professional work, Roxy is an Afro-Caribbean immigrant who's passionate about supporting social change at the personal, interpersonal, and systemic levels. Her practice is based in San Francisco, and she delights, and I can attest to this, in helping opposing voices hear each other and see past individual hurt and struggles to the structures that contribute to those challenges. Roxy, there's so much more I could say about you, but welcome to the Language Alchemy podcast, and thank you for saying yes to my invitation. I'm actually delighted to be in conversation with you again. (laughs) Yes, it's been a long time. Mm -hmm. I'd love to start by asking you how you started this very specific work of supporting social change at the personal, interpersonal, and systemic level through NVC or compassionate communication? Oh, I love this question. No, I actually started first with looking at anti-racism and looking at changing oppressive structures. When I was in graduate mm-hmm. school, it was one of the things that several of the global majority students and I were really passionate about. We wanted to think about how psychology can actually impact the experience that global majority folks have. And I'll define global majority later for your listeners if it's a term that they don't yes. know. And, you know, psychology is wonderful. I love it. It's my passion. But there was also something missing. One of the things that we learned in psychology was empathy was key. Empathy was transformative. But we didn't actually get taught, like, what is empathy? How do you do it? 
And that's where nonviolent communication came in. That was a practice of empathy with some very clear steps around understanding what's important to each person, being able to reflect that, that helped to kind of supercharge my psychology practice. And I saw the importance of bringing that model into the anti-racism work that I was doing. So it sounds like your work evolved. You started first looking at psychology, looking at all these changes and, and impacts at a social level. And then from there, you looked at how do we communicate with empathy? And then NVC came in after psychology. I thought it was the other way around. No, it's interesting, right? Because I started, I actually got my PhD probably about two years before I even heard of nonviolent communication. And it was actually my dissertation <laughs> advisor who introduced me to it after I'd gotten my PhD. But no, psychology came first, which is, it's fitting since Marshall is also a clinical psychologist, right? So it's kind of fully in the lineage. <laughs> it, that's exactly what I was going to say, because I remember Marshall saying that when he finished his PhD in psychology, his advisor said something about, yes, communication. And then he was like, you tell me this now after I went through all these years of study and the same happened with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which kind of like shows us that there's always an opportunity to keep learning and to have the humility that we need to keep learning. There, there's more uh, than what we have already learned. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I remember that when I did the annual NVC leadership program that you co-facilitated, that you led a very powerful exercise to help us understand privilege. You may not remember everything you did in, that, in those retreats, but it was this exercise of taking a step. You would ask us questions mm -hmm. and then you would, you would needed to take a step forward or, or a step back. Mm -hmm. And I was really surprised to find myself where I ended up and to see that how I saw myself was different from how American society saw me as an immigrant. And uh, I know you're going to talk about the global majority, but also sees me as a person of color and what that all meant and coming from another country and not having those constructs. It was very impactful for me. And my question to you is that for you as an immigrant, what it was like for you to find your own sense of identity, your own sense of belonging as an Afro-Caribbean immigrant? Wow. I think you're the first person who's asked me this. Ooh, yeah. You know, it was hard. It was really hard. And I came to the United States when I was seven. So I was actually quite young. But even then, by seven, I didn't actually have a sense around what race meant. And in Trinidad, where I'm originally from, I was part of, I was black. Most of the people that I knew was black. It was like my family was actually relatively successful. We had nurses. In fact, one of my relatives was the prime minister of Trinidad at one point, right? So we were really successful and I didn't see myself as less than in any way. And coming to the United States, I think that was the first shock that I had was both seeing that other people saw me and my family as less than, but also that there wasn't even a sense of like, we're all black together. I think the system set it up so that black folks from the Caribbean were treated differently and looked down on 
black folks from the United States and black folks from the United States were taught to look down on black folks from the Caribbean. So there was a lot of dividing going on. And the way that I made sense of this tragically as a child was I decided there was something wrong with me, right? That I just wasn't good enough Mm -hmm. to know how to navigate all of these different areas that I found myself in. And so my journey was really one of realizing that all of this was actually external, that this wasn't a failing in me. It was a failing in the systems that I was inheriting. And I had to learn how to find my own value and hold it up in the face of kind of almost continuous messages that it shouldn't be there, that it didn't exist. Thank you so much for sharing that this started for you at such a young age of seven, where you didn't have any idea of all these constructs that that we have and the ways in which the system has labeled us, categorized us, and grouped us, and and then put us in these categories of these are the groups that are going to be above and up, and these are the groups that are going to be below. Your story resonates with me quite a bit because being from Argentina, when I came to the United States, I was also seen as less than as Latina in I didn't even know what the term like person of color was. Mm -hmm. And then even within the Latino group seen as well, but you are from Argentina, you are not Mexican. And then the members of our precious human family, because they were born in Mexico, supposedly they're less than me and somehow I'm above them or something like that. And yeah, it took for me a lot of painful processing Mm -hmm. and work on finding my own value as well. I think it's really like really important that you name the way that we compartmentalize even within this group like Latina that we compartmentalize it because it's also a struggle like a lot of times when I talk about anti-racism people only talk about like racism between the global majority and white folks but it also happens within our groups because this is what we've learned this is the message that we've given that's been given to us and in some ways, there's almost this benefit. It's like, if I buy into that story, if you're Argentinian, then you can like say, okay, at least I'm better than, right? And it actually is one exactly. of the ways that people start to try to make themselves feel better in a system that's stacked against them, tragically. Tragically, and that we perpetuate sometimes unknowingly. Mm-hmm. When I was a public school teacher, I had many students from Haiti. And the students from Haiti... At first, they wanted to blend in into the Black community. And then when they realized that it would take like two years, it was like clockwork. After two years, when they realized how the Black community was treated in Massachusetts, where I was teaching in public school, then they would try to have a thicker, if you will, Haitian accent to show that they were not African-American born in the United States. Mm -hmm. It's so tragic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Last week, I attended one of your many events. I know you're very busy with the book launch. And I heard you say that you wanted to not pass on to your children the same patterns that you had learned. What are some of these patterns that you have learned? And what did you do to unlearn them? Ooh. So patterns, so, so, so many, you know, it's like the word tragic keeps coming up in this conversation. But some of the 
kind of qualities that we talk about when we talk about white supremacy culture were things that I completely embraced. So one of them is perfectionism. I was taught really early, like my parents had to learn how to survive being in the United States. And one of these sayings that is often part of the black community is you have to do twice as much to be seen as half as good. And there was always this idea yeah. that you have to do more, be more, everything has to be perfect. I remember my dad who really wanted me to succeed would check my drafting homework. And if there was even the tiniest smudge, he would make me do it all over. It had to be perfect. Mm. And wow. I totally <laughs> embraced that kind of idea that everything about me had to be perfect. Like any work that I turned in had to be perfect. And it was paralyzing. And I didn't want my children to think that, that they had to buy acceptance. They had to buy belonging by being perfect. Another one is taking care of everyone. It's like, I couldn't ever have my own needs. I had to always be tracking what's going on for everyone in the room and how can I make sure that they're okay? Because if they're okay, then they're going to think I'm okay. So those are like just two examples of the ones that I really struggled with and had such an impact on me that I had to unlearn. Now, would you say that the second one was because you were born or raised as female? I think that you had to take care of others. It's a combination mm -hmm. for sure, because we're also talking about compartmentalizing within ethnic groups. And there's also that compartmentalization around gender within a group, right? And so for right. sure, in my family, I watched my mom who, I mean, and for my mom, it was fully choiceful. But as a child, I kept going, why are you doing this, right? My dad would work second shift. He would get home at midnight. And my mom would like make dinner for everyone after working all day and feed all of the kids, but she wouldn't eat. She would stay up until midnight to eat with my dad. And it was just kind of like, what wow. about your sleep? What about what you're needing? My dad gets to sleep in because he doesn't have to go to work till three. You have to get up and go to work in the morning. And she always did. And so mm. I think part of it was gender, but there's also something around race because I started moving in a lot of white communities, right? I went to a white school um, in seventh grade. And there was always this idea that if you were a black person in a white school, you couldn't have needs, right? I always had to make sure white mm. folks were comfortable. So I think it got reinforced wow. both by gender and by race. Being aware that these patterns are here, you learn them, you had to do the work to unlearn them. What's the impact of unlearning them? Well, I'd say it's still a work in progress. You talked earlier about like learning yes. continues forever. <laughs> I'm still unlearning yeah. them. But mm. I'm noticing like even just writing the books is a great example of the impact of me unlearning them. Before I had started working on this, you know, I've been doing this work for decades and everyone would say like, where's the book? I want to read your book. I need to like go deeper. And I would never be able to do it because I would hit that perfectionism piece. If I write something and I put it out there, I'm putting something that people can evaluate and tear apart and I'm going to be judged. And I just never thought I was good enough. And I always thought I had to be alone that the only way I could have communities, if I did things on my own, I wasn't a burden to anybody else. And writing the books, it was completely different. First, it was like, I'm actually risking putting this out into the world. But then, and this was like so, so, so meaningful for me. I realized I couldn't do it on my own because I kept running into these roadblocks where I would judge myself. And so I gathered a bunch of folks who had been working with me over the years who really supported my work. And I said, I need your help. And I called them my tower and we would get together every week and they would say, okay, where are you feeling stuck? Tell us about this concept. And I would just talk with them or they would say, wow, you're feeling a lot of self-judgment and they would empathize with me. And I wasn't mm. in my mind giving them anything. I was only taking. 
And just saying, that's okay to say, I need help. Will you give it to me freely with joy? And saying yes <laughs> to that was huge. And so the books are the end product of that journey. That's so beautiful. And I'm thinking you created, you called in, in this tower, your beloved community. Mm -hmm. I actually did. And it was also, it was both calling it in, but also recognizing that it was there. Because I think that's one of the yes. challenges that many of us who've learned these patterns have, that we don't actually see the extent of support and love and acceptance that surrounds us. Yeah. And that you're so deserving of that love, that acceptance, that support that others are giving to you with the same, perhaps even more amount of joy that you give to others when you give to others. Yes. It's such a weird catch-22 because I would always feel strange when I would tell people like, I love giving to people. It's joyful for me, but I don't trust anybody wants to give to me, right? Like it's got to be a burden. Yeah. It's like, how do I expect you to think that I'm giving freely if I can't accept what you're offering me freely? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm raising my hand. Yeah. I'm unlearning that too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's very much a work in progress. Yes. So you talked about the process of writing your books and, and having what I call beloved community supporting you. And you published a couple of books on anti-racist conversations. Many of the listeners here may not know what to have an anti-racist conversation means. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to you to have an anti-racist conversation? Sure. So I think we have to start with first, like, what is anti-racist, right? If we're going to have an anti-racist right. conversation, what do we mean by anti-racist? And I always use the definition that I love from Ibram Kendi, Dr. Ibram Kendi. Yeah. And he says like an, a racist is somebody who does something, who takes an action that has a negative impact, a, a negative impact on one group. And an anti-racist is somebody who's taking actions that are meant to restore equity between groups. And so when I think mm -hmm. about an anti-racist conversation, it's the kind of conversations that we need in order to move towards actions that will restore equity to a situation. And that's it. So if you find yourself experiencing a microaggression, if something is not happening at work because there's racism happening at work, so how do I have those conversations that restore equity? I love this way of thinking of anti-racist conversations as supporting the need or the value of equity and bringing forth equity for all the beautiful members of our human families. I haven't received your books yet because they just came out of the oven, right? Oh, they did. <laughs> but I've ordered them last week and, uh, and they're on the way. And so I'm sure I'm going to have you here again after, after I read the books. But I was wondering if your book was based on the, on the work of Dr. Kendi. So. I would say it's, you know, kind of a little bit based on his work, but really what I've done in the books is I've melded together. So anti-racist conversations, how to have anti-racist conversations is the main book. It's where I kind of put in all of my theory, all of the understanding of the systems that I want people to have to do this work effectively. And it's weaving in information from nonviolence, especially Kingian nonviolence, plus nonviolent mm -hmm. communication, plus a bit about psychology. So it's bringing all of those systems together. And so it's, it's a little bit broader than just looking at Kendi's work. Beautiful. When I went to grad school to study transformative leadership, we read a book that talked about how 
the future belonged to the integrators, Mm -hmm. that we have, we as a human race have already invented so many things that we already had the knowledge, but we had to synthesize and integrate that knowledge into our own authentic expression. And with what you just said, Roxy, I am so excited to read your book because it's an integration. Mm-hmm. This It's an integration of all the knowledge that you have been gathering, cultivating, refining, and it's your authentic expression. What a beautiful way to think about it. I love that. <laughs> In that event I attended last week, you were talking about positive peace Mm -hmm. as a result of people having these anti-racist conversations. Mm -hmm. So is there some kind of signature to these anti-racist conversations? Just like in NBC, we have the particular, you know, like four steps, the observations, feelings, needs, and requests, or maybe can you share with us an example of what that might sound like that can lead to positive peace. Mm-hmm. And maybe, you know, explain positive peace too. This question is very complex. I'm aware of this. <laughs> yeah. So why don't I start off first with like the positive peace question? And so positive peace, we contrast to negative peace. And negative peace, I love the example that Dr. King actually talked about when this came up, which was when the schools were being integrated in Alabama, there was this, the black students who went into the schools, you know, a lot of the white people were angry, like, how dare you? How you, how can you enter our space? And they kept blaming it on the student. You are the one who's doing these actions that are causing problems that we had peace before. Well, you didn't actually mm. had peace. What you had was this veneer of everything being calm. No one was saying anything, but people were hurting. People were impacted. People didn't have access. But for the white folks, It was like, I didn't have to see any of that. You weren't talking about it. So everything looked peaceful for me. So that's an example Mm -hmm. of negative peace. It's peace at the expense of certain groups. And positive peace says peace happens when everybody's needs are being met. And when we have the conversations, even if they're hard, even if they're difficult, even if they get us scared inside, but we have the conversations that we need to have in order to understand what the needs are and come up with the strategies that make that happen. So. Mm-hmm. positive peace is kind of my goal. It's part of what we need in order to create beloved community. And so what does that look like? What does that look like when we have these conversations? It's complicated. Like I've written, you know, almost 300 pages about this, right? So I would start off by saying that I invite people to do the inner work first. A lot of times we jump into these conversations. It's like something's happened. I've got to fix it right away. And we don't actually slow down to understand What's actually important to me here? How am I perceiving this? What biases or limitations in perspective are impacting what I'm understanding is going on? So I always invite people to slow down and I have a whole process around like checking the observation, understanding your feelings and your needs, getting empathy if you need it. And then (laughs) it's really important to be clear on what kind of conversation do you want to have? Because people often go, like I said, to the solution conversation. X has happened, we need to find Y, the solution that's going to fix X. But sometimes that's not the conversation I need to have. And I talk in the book about four different kinds of conversations that you can have. One conversation is that dialogue for solution. Great. That's an important one. But usually before you get there, one of the dialogues is I just want to be heard. 
something has happened that's impacted me. And I want you to know that. I know that you work with couples. And I think this comes up a lot with couples. It's like, I don't even trust that you've heard me. You're telling me this is how we're going to fix it. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. So Mm -hmm. that's the first one. Beautiful. And then I have three more. So dialogue to be heard. And then the next one is a dialogue for shared understanding. And this one is like very close to the dialogue to be heard. In the dialogue to be heard, I'm really clear that I want you to hear me and I might not have the capacity to hear you. And that is okay. And especially when I think about anti-racism, I want people to realize that if I'm the person who's impacted, I sometimes will not have the capacity to hear you. And that's actually a very powerful anti-racist stance because I'm not buying into the dominant culture idea that I always need to make sure the white person feels safe. I can tell you what my truth is and trust that you're going to go get the support you need elsewhere to understand it, to unpack it, to figure out what you want to do with it. But I just want to be understood. In a dialogue for shared understanding, there's mutual understanding going on. I want to share my needs, but I also want to understand yours. I want to understand your perspective, the things that you're holding. So those are two conversations that are related, but are slightly different. And it seems like for each of them, you need to be in a different space. The space of I need to be heard, maybe I'm I'm hurting at this moment. And I just want to put this hurt in the space between us and have this experience be held by both of us or by you. And in the second one, it seems like we already have more space. We can recognize that, yes, I want to share what's happening with me and for you to understand me. And I also have the space, Mm -hmm. the capacity in this moment to hear what's going on with you and understand you. Absolutely. And I love this piece around sometimes when I'm needing to be heard, and I want this, ex- this experience to be held by you. It doesn't mean you have to fix it. It doesn't mean you have to do anything else. It's just, I just need my reality to be affirmed, right? I need to not have this, you know, we talk about gaslighting, this continuous idea that, no, you're just making it up. It's in your head. It's not real. You're being too sensitive. I want to be heard. This is what's happening. And to see that reflected in how you're receiving me. And in the second one, One of the things that I always remind people is it doesn't have to be the same conversation, right? So there's this culture of urgency that's part of white supremacy culture. Mm -hmm. It might be that today you hear me and maybe two weeks from now when we've had time to integrate what I've shared, I hear you. Mm -hmm. And it's still part of this longer dialogue. It doesn't have to happen in that one setting. Yeah, exactly. You're reminding me, I usually call them micro conversations with, with my clients. I like to use the metaphor of a garden. Like you're, you're doing drip irrigation, you know, drip by drip, drop by drop. You're nourishing those roots mm-hmm. that then can grow into beautiful plants or trees that can house birds and insects and they can give us fruit, mm-hmm. but it's not going to happen overnight. And Absolutely. So, so the third conversation is what I call the dialogue for healing. And for that conversation, mm-hmm. it's recognizing that sometimes what I'm needing, what the outcome I'm wanting is, is not necessarily so much to understand you or even to be heard, but to acknowledge that there has been a deep wound. And I'm wanting the kind of listening that will actually help me both understand the wound And then also help to rewrite the story because a lot of the reasons we have pain, and especially like I said earlier, 
when I was younger, the story that I wrote about my experience was there was something wrong with me. And I had to have enough listening, enough healing to rewrite that story. Actually, it's not me, right? And so that's what the Dialogue for Healing is about. It's about helping people understand the roots of why they're having the experience that they're having and to understand the needs, kind of bringing in that nonviolent communication dimension. What are the other needs that somebody might have been trying to meet that are not, I'm bad or they're bad, but this is this horrible, tragic role that we've been given. And how can I shift the stories that I've created about this? Hmm. Wow. Just hearing that, Roxy, I feel like my energy settling in in my body and I, how can I support your work? Please, everybody who's listening, buy her books and attend her trainings mm. because they, as you can hear, Luxy has so much wisdom that she's um, so beautifully sharing with us, but that I've benefited from. And, you know, what, what I share in the podcast and with my clients also comes from you, Roxy. So, oh. <laughs> you know, the ripple effect is, is really infinite. Mm -hmm. And I love that part of your work, you, so you've mentioned these four conversations and you've also mentioned again and again, global majority. And part of your work is also bringing awareness to how we use this powerful tool that we have available at all times, our language. Mm -hmm. And you have made a conscious choice to use the term global majority mm -hmm. that I learned last week in your event that it was coined by Rosemary Campbell Stevens. Can you share why you chose to use that term and why would it be important for us to choose it too? Sure. So you have also used the term people of color. We've talked about black, we've talked about minorities. And really when mm -hmm. I think about the term minorities, right? Minorities has a whole lot of implications, even if we're not meaning it this way. Minority means less than. And what Dr. Rosemary Campbell Stevens talked about is the term global majority actually reflects the reality of what's true in the world and not this reality, this false reality that the term minority tells us about. So when I say minority in the United States, and we're talking about people from all over the world, like you were called a minority when you came to the United States, what we're actually not acknowledging is that people with that identity of minority are actually 85% of the world population, 85%. Mm. So we are not by any means the minority. And calling us the minority both hides our numbers, our numerical power, and it also continues to hide all of the amazing contributions that global, ma global majority cultures have made to the world. And so this is yeah. a way of reclaiming. We are actually not the minority. We actually have stature, presence, et cetera, and helping to challenge some of these very subtle connotations. And so, mm -hmm. and I also use the term, I know that you have a global audience. I use the term because yes. globally, people really struggle with some of the other terms that we use in our areas, right? So when I say people of color, people are like, does that include Asian folks or not? Does it, like, where mm -hmm. do I fit? Am I a person of color if I'm multiracial or am I not, right? But if I say people of the global majority, it's so inclusive. It's like it includes everybody from any ethnicity or any kind of combinations of ethnicity who are essentially not European, right? Not white European. So it, it's more inclusive and it doesn't matter around which culture I'm from. Thank you. Thank you so much for that.
Now I'm going to switch gears a little bit because I want to focus on your books. I really want every listener to buy your book, to have access to your book or get it from the library. Ask your library to carry the book and carry multiple copies of the book so you can benefit from it. Who or them actually, who are the books written for? Yes. Did you have a particular audience? Yes and no. (laughs) So it's actually written for everyone, right? Because these are conversations. Like when I think about who do I want to have these anti-racist conversations, we all need to have it. I want every listener to hear that. Anti-racist conversations are not conversations just for people of the global majority. It's for everyone. We're all impacted by racism. So we all have a role to play. And at the same time, the books have a very clear sense. Like there are times that I'm clear I'm talking to people of the global majority and I want to share my experience to normalize it, to make people see themselves in what I'm writing. And I also talk explicitly about some of the challenges that white folks might face when they're trying to do this work. So it's both for everyone. And then there'll be clear times when you'll know who I'm talking to, depending on what I'm saying. (laughs) Wonderful. And when we're thinking of these anti-racist conversations and the benefit that we can all enjoy by having these anti-racist conversations, having this idea that we're bringing forth equity for all of us, all the precious members of our human family. What can we do to, to start the process of having these important conversations that can benefit us all? Yes. So this is a great example where the message I have for global majority folks might be a little bit different than the message I have for white folks, right? So for a lot of my global majority friends who might be listening right now, you are already having these conversations. You can't help but have these conversations as you're impacted by different things that are happening. So a lot of times people talk about being brave and having these brave conversations. You're doing it. You are living this brave life. What's different for us is that we're often thinking about maybe soldiering through these conversations. I have to have these conversations. I force myself to have these conversations. And I invite folks to slow down and really check in. What do I need to do to have these conversations in ways that actually support me that are not focused on I'm educating a white person, but what am I wanting out of this conversation? How will it benefit me? So the first step that I would say you can do to prepare for them is to, you know, get your own little tower and start having people where you can regularly look at the things that are happening to you and say, is this a conversation I want to have? Is the cost too great if I started to have this conversation with my boss who can fire me? Like, do I need to leave that alone and just get empathic support? Or do I actually want to confront and change something? And either decision is okay. It's really around what is serving needs for you and for your community. When I talk to white folks... I often say, okay, y'all, y'all need to be brave, right? <laughs> this is where the brave <laughs> conversation is. And part of what yeah. I, the message I give there is that I know a lot of folks say, you know, I want to have these conversations, but I'm afraid of doing more harm. And I will tell you that the harm is happening, whether or not you have these conversations. Yeah. But when it happens without you being part of the conversations, I experience harm and I feel alone. I don't know that anyone yeah. else cares, has my back, sees what's happening. It's lonely. And so take that risk to show up for these conversations, to say something or to try to intervene, knowing that you might not have the impact that you want because you get to do it over. If I tell you, whoa, you overstepped, 
that's a new conversation we can have. It doesn't end there. Mm-hmm. And so there's no harm in trying because trying at least gives me the message that you care about this and that you see it and it matters to you. Mm-hmm. What a beautiful motivation to not keep perpetuating the pain that is already occurring and that has been occurring for millennia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. And I'm sure that white folks ask you how not to get discouraged or fall into hopelessness or helplessness mm-hmm. when they need to have these conversations. Have you encountered that that kind of question? Well, yes, but not just from white folks. <laughs> I actually... <laughs> yes. I feel like a lot of my global majority folks say that a lot more. Like mm. I keep, I feel like I'm, you know, hitting my head on a brick wall with trying to have these conversations. And so how do I not fall into hopelessness? There are a number of things. I love looking at the youth nowadays. And so if you have not been following the immensely creative thing that so many brilliant young folks are doing, they are having these conversations. They are stepping into yes. these spaces. And so I kind of look to them and say, I might not have it right yet. But it's possible because I see them having it. So that's the first thing. Like start to follow some of the thought leaders who are doing this because it will keep you inspired about what's possible. The next thing is, and this is part of why we wrote the handbook, right? The anti-racist heart is to recognize that this takes practice. You weren't born with all of these systems implanted in our head. We learned them. And for many of us, it's like I've been learning it for 50 years, right? And so it's going to take time to unlearn it. So get a practice group together. You know, if you have a book club, start a book club and like really work on role playing. What are some of these conversations we might have? I remember when you were in the leadership program, that's one of the things we did a lot, right? A lot of role plays, a lot of post rehearsals. Mm -hmm. You have the conversation. It doesn't go how you went. Do it over. (laughs) Practice it again with your Mm -hmm. friends and then go try again. So just remember, you can keep over and over and over and over again having these conversations. I love this suggestion of having a group. And again, it's like gathering these beloved communities and feeling supported. And I think like when we get together with other people who also want to bring forth equity, who want to bring forth healing, who want to bring forth peace, positive peace in our world, in our families, in our communities, in our workspaces, then it's so much easier. My husband is part of a group called White Men for Racial Justice. Mm. And they do this a lot. They talk a lot about all kinds of things related to racial justice and looking at their biases and having compassion and empathy for each other, uh, the mistakes that they make every day, uh, the, the success, the conversations that they have every day. And it's so beautiful that he has that. And I love, love, love hearing this because so often people say, well, if we have like a white only group or a black only group, isn't that racist? And I say, no, this is exactly the place where you get to practice and have those conversations and admit that you don't do know something without causing harm. So as a black person, I don't have to listen to you say, I think this is going to be racist, but I want to say it anyway and get information. I don't have to take on that burden of educating you because you have a space to do that. And I have my space to mourn or grieve or to express anger without worrying that it's actually going to break our connection and that we can't actually do the work together. So I love when people find spaces where they can dive deep 
without having to worry about the impact for anyone else or without having to worry that they're just not going to understand me. Wow, this conversation is so rich, Roxy. I could go for, you know, on and on and on. I have so much curiosity and I'm sure I'm going to be showing up to your workshops. And do you want to talk about what offerings you have together with the book or, or in addition to the book? What, what's coming up in your world? You are also a global traveler and you train in different parts of the world. Yes. So. Yes, I'm going to be doing a training in Germany in the end of September, beginning of October, and then in France around power and privilege in November. And then I think my next international training will be in Romania next year. So if you, I don't think they're all up on my website yet, but if you go to my website, you'll find some of them. Romania is not there yet. But if you wanted to have like an online training, again, knowing that a lot of your audience is um, global, I do classes. So I have a class. The class that actually was part of the foundation for me writing these books is my coaching across racial microaggressions class, where I help people understand how to identify microaggressions when they happen and then how to respond to them, whether or not I'm the person that it was targeted to, I'm the person who did it, or I'm the person who's witnessing it. So that's one of the classes that I offer pretty regularly. And then there are two classes that we're offering that are connected to the book. One of them is focused just on anti-racist conversations. And I think that's starting at the beginning of December. And then with Sarah Payton, uh, my co-author for The Anti-Racist Heart, we'll be doing another class that's on both books. And that starts at the end of January. So if anyone can look at my website, RoxanneManning.com, to learn about that. But I also want to make a plug for one more thing the, that I think people would love is that I also have a podcast with Sarah Payton. And this podcast is also... When you said, how do we get inspired? This is that what, what the podcast is about. We decided to interview people who are doing anti-racist work, but in a lot of different forms, not just activism, but composers, musicians, writers, artists, like so many different ways of showing up and advancing the conversations about equity. And we're doing like an episode every two weeks. And you can find that podcast on the book's website, antiracistconversations.com and click on the podcast link. I'm so looking forward to checking out all these resources. And you are also on social media. Where can people find you on social media? Yes, I'm on Instagram and LinkedIn on Facebook. Let's see. And I think on Instagram, I'm, I think on all of them, it's some version of my name, Roxy Manning. So if you search for Roxy Manning, you'll find me. Beautiful. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like people who are interested in bringing forth more love, more peace, more equity through conscious communication? No. You know, I actually think as I'm sitting here looking at you, I think the parting message is I want people to, to take advantage of the things that people like you are offering. That, as I said earlier, that the inner work is necessary for us to be able to have these conversations. And so finding somebody, a coach that you can work with, somebody that you can have these conversations and who's going to be authentic about letting you know, like, Here's where what you're doing is not working. And let's unpack why. It's really important. So if anybody listening is struggling with how to do it, slow down, give yourself some grace and start with that inner work. Thank you so much. I'm sure I'm going to invite you again. If you're not too busy, you to say yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> thank you. And thank you all for listening. Until next week. And as we say in Argentina... 
Ciao, ciao. And ciao, ciao. <laughs> Original music by Gary Lapoe. You can find all links to find Roxy in the show notes at languagealchemy.com.